The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Our Heavenly Father, uh, give us hearts that forgive, free us from our anger and contempt. Use your word to accomplish these purposes, we ask in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, it's a short text this morning. We're going through the uh, Ten Commandments. A lot of them have been. Um, you know, I confess myself that I woke up at like 2 o'clock this morning, and so if I feel uh, like I have less energy, it's not you, and it's not me, or it is me. It's not you, and it's not the Word of God that's at fault. These words are still true. On some level, I feel a little bit this morning like the prophet Jonah uh, not because y'all are Babylon, but because I just don't have the energy to do much more than just say the words which are true. And so we're going to say those words, and we're going to trust that God, uh, through His Spirit, is powerful enough to work uh, in our hearts, not because we are excellent, obviously, uh, but because He's good, and He loves us. Um, I'm glad you hear it. Christ the King Savannah, we've been going about five years now. I've been in Savannah about ten. Uh, the first house we owned... It's nine years ago. It was over off uh, Bonaventure Road and State Streets. We love this house. It's the nicest house we'll ever live in. A, a SCAD interior design professor had uh, owned it before us and had done all the upgrades, but because of the neighborhood, the price was still pretty reasonable. You know, like, we got a great deal. But I remember one time, uh, a couple months into our first home ownership experience, uh, let's just say, let's put it this way, there was a trap house down the street, right? And we heard, uh, sitting, Emma and I are sitting there eating dinner, uh, first house we own, we heard, bop, 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 bop. And then like five minutes later, a bunch of cops were out there and all the neighbors were sort of out in the street, standing around looking at this drive-by shooting that had happened at this, this house down the street. It was a block away. It's like, okay, well, this is a new part of our reality. Uh, a couple months later, same thing happened again. It was, it was about dusk, you know, sun was starting to set. I heard, bop, bop, bop. So I waited like three or four minutes for the cops to get there and all the neighbors to come out. So I, I went, then I went out expecting to have the neighborhood scene that we'd had before where everybody stands around sort of discussing what went on. But by the time I got to the house where the gunfire had occurred, there were no cops. There were no neighbors. In fact, this house was right next to this little park. And I did see a cop, but he was driving around shining his little spotlight in the bushes of the park. And I thought, what am I doing out here? You know, this guy's looking for the murder that occurred. You know, like, this is crazy. We'd been there about a year or so, and it was like, okay, it's, it's time to move because of all this, uh, all this attempted murdering. Um, and, but I, we really loved this house, and I'll never forget, uh, we, had, we had closed on the house that we're in now, um, moving away from, from this house, but we're still thinking, why are we doing this? We love this house so much. My mother-in-law is sitting in there with uh, my young son in her arms, and we heard, bop, 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 and somebody shot up the stop sign right out front. And I thought, this is why we're moving. Thank you for reminding me, Lord, you know. Thankfully, and it, it inspired in me the desire to come up with the KCI. If any of my friends know that I'm all about coming up with indices uh, about things and rating systems, the Carnegie Crime Index, which goes something like this, if you're a person with my level of privilege uh, in this city, if gunfire occurs five blocks or more away from you in Savannah, you're fine. No big deal. It's Savannah. This is just what happens, right? If it occurs two to four blocks away, you need to be careful, okay? Look around, keep your wits about you, but ultimately fine. It's Savannah. If it occurs one block away, it's time to move, you know, right? Because murder is something that we think we can move away from. We do. We believe it. 
you know. Murder is something that happens over there to those people, you know. Don't deal drugs and you won't get murdered, you know. Or you won't have the temptation to do any murdering, right? It's a simple sort of command that God presents us with today. And if the murdering starts to happen near to you, you move away because you can, right? Major quality of life issue. Murder is something that happens over there. Maybe murder is something that you see politically. Maybe murder is what Peter Singer advocates for when he says, we can abort babies up to two years old or something like this. Maybe that's murder, right? And it happens out there. That's the important thing. And we think that in many ways this commandment is far uh, from us. It doesn't have anything to do with our daily reality. Uh, for many of us, uh, that's how that is. So today we're going to kick back and relax. You're just going to get the good news that murder is bad. And you shouldn't do it, but no big deal. We don't really struggle with that, do we? People like us. Maybe it's true. Maybe with this commandment, we don't need a spiritual transformation. Maybe it's just societal conditions. If they would change, all the murdering would stop. That is, until you look at what murder really is in Scripture, and then we get a very different perspective. Maybe murder isn't something that you can move away from. First of all, we have it in Exodus, and I'm going to flip uh, to a couple of different verses here to show you the definition of murder as uh, Exodus untangles it in Exodus 20. I can get there. I should have marked the page. Um, we have the Ten Commandments, and we typically think of the Ten Commandments as sort of standing alone uh, on two stone tablets, but they really don't. They come immediately following the Ten Commandments comes all these case law, all this, all this description of case law. It's almost like the Ten Commandments are the principles, and then the next couple chapters in the book of Exodus are fleshing those principles out. Here's what it looks like, and, and here's some of the punishments for uh, what um, happens if you uh, transgress the Ten Commandments. So you turn to Exodus 21, and you get a real sense of what exactly murder is according to Scripture. Exodus 21:12. I'll read it to you. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay, that makes sense, right? But if he didn't wait around for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. I'm not sure what waiting around for him means. This seems like premeditation is maybe the deal here. Uh, there's slightly different sort of uh, punishment. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So what is murder? The obvious physical violence with the intent to kill, right? That's murder according to God. Exodus 21, 18 or 19 says something a little different. It says, when men quarrel, they're getting in an argument, right? So nobody's sitting around waiting to kill anybody. They're just arguing. And one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man doesn't die but takes to his bed. Then if the man gets up and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he has to pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed, right? So there's obviously this punishment. You tried to kill him but failed, right? You tried to murder but failed. The punishment is slightly smaller. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 24 are interesting. When men fight together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm to the children, is the implication, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for strife. So here's the point, right? We're all feeling good about ourselves. Any of y'all done this? Any of you lied in wait to kill somebody? And if you successfully pull it off, please come tell me after and I'll counsel you, okay? With the elders in the room, obviously. I'm not going to be alone with you, uh, crazy person. But you get what I'm saying. We're all feeling good about ourselves, right? 
because I've never killed anybody and I've never accidentally caused somebody to die. Great. And actually, why don't I just shame those people who have, you know? Those people who have killed someone uh, by any of the scriptural definitions. Let's shame the murderers, the violent, the abortionists. Let's shame them. We're better than them, aren't we? We're nothing like them. Murder is just, after all, external violence. Look, we need these codes. Remember what the Ten Commandments are. They're codes for a whole people group who are getting ready to walk across the desert. We need these codes to govern communal living. But let's be honest. When Jesus exegetes or explains this commandment to his people, he says something very different about what murder is. It's the sort of murder that you can't just blame other people for committing, but instead you find the cop driving around the circle and he shines the flashlight on you. Listen to what Jesus says about this commandment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's quoting the commandment, right? He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, it's an expression of contempt, will be liable to the fire, the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Let me ask you this question this morning. Who are you angry with? Here. Like on some level, if we're going to take Jesus at his words, there should be a stampede towards that back door, right? What Jesus calls murder is something very different, right? He, he takes it in descending levels of seriousness. Uh, if you're angry at him, you get judged. If you insult your brother, there's this action, right? So we move from emotional state to action. If you insult your brother, uh, you're going to the council and there might be a penalty. And whoever says you fool, which is this expression of contempt, actually has the most uh, punishment reserved for them. You will be liable to the fires of hell. What is that? What is contempt? Now do you believe that a murder has happened not just out there but in your own hearts? In that moment when we're actually inclined to believe that we are better than everyone who has murdered, when our hearts are filled with contempt for people who have violated God's law, we ourselves come under the conviction of this commandment. This commandment is for all of us, right? What is contempt? That's a sort of psychological term we use a lot. John Gottman, a researcher uh, on marriage and family dynamics, ha has a couple of signifiers uh, of what it means uh, to have contempt. Let's see if you recognize any of this in your own life. Demis dismissive or belittling language. Can you think of you having used that any of this past week? You're so dumb. Seriously, this is so simple. How do you not get it? You're such a slob, I can't stand living with you. You're so lazy. I honestly don't know how you managed to get anything done. Dismissive or belittling language, contempt. Sarcastic responses to questions, right? He gave some examples. Partner A, what are you doing later? Partner B, anything that's not hanging out with you? Ha ha. You know, like, partner A, can you please make sure you arrive on time to pick me up from work? Partner B, sure, I'll arrive on time, just so I can sit around and wait for you. Sarcastic responses to questions. Jokes that are half-truths. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Jokes that are half-truths. Here we come, CTK. Someone asks you, what do you guys do for work? One partner responds, well, I'm a doctor, and she works on spending my income full-time. Ha-ha. You know, jokes that are half-truths. 
eye-rolling, sneering, or dismissive body language, physical distance, feeling repulsed by touch and affection. Here's one for the men. Stonewalling is an expression of contempt. You've heard this term? Giving people the silent treatment or refusing to engage in conversation, shutting down emotionally or ignoring the other person. Finally, criticism and blame. All you do is complain. Why can't you be more positive? You just sit around all day. Why don't you actually do something worthwhile? All these signs were expressions of contempt. The, the single factor actually which Gottman said was most predictive in whether a marriage would succeed or fail five years later. All these things seem so small. All these expressions of contempt seem so small. Why are they a problem? What's the big deal? Why is Jesus so worked up about them? Why does it seem like murder? I think it's a fair question. There's three reasons. It messes up our relationship with God, other people, and with ourselves. First of all, contempt denies the truth about the other person in the relationship. Uh, it says that because the other people in the relationship, I don't know if you're aware of this, but all the sinners that you're in relationship to are actually also made in the image of God. They have this inherent sort of dignity. God's word says that he made them to look like him. You have, as C.S. Lewis says, never met a mere mortal, right? That's lofty, exalted language. The people in here, if you saw them the way they were intended to be, you would be most inclined to fall down and worship them. That's how it would be. That's the truth about the people in this room. The truth about the people that you're in relationship to. And what contempt does is says this. You are not. You are less than. You are beneath me, and I am above you. Even in the midst of our sin and our foolishness, under everything else, there is a truth about people when we're in relationship to, that they are made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. So it denies the truth about the other person, contempt does. It also denies a foundational truth. If we hate those who look like God, here's the question. What does that say about how we feel about the one that they look like? A little reflection of him, a little model of him. When we speak with contempt, actually it's one way of saying not only are we above the people that we're in relationship to, no, we're also above the God who made them. There's the dehumanizing effect of contempt. Uh, psychologists have studied the role of propaganda uh, in, in getting populations ready to commit violence against one another. Um, before you can uh, convince people to uh, go out and actually do murder, you have to teach them that, that the people that they're doing violence to are, the, are actually not people at all. They are subhuman. And lastly this, contempt actually rots us from the inside. It rots us from the inside. It's corrosive to us. The anger that is necessary to sustain contempt makes it impossible for us ever to connect with one another. If it's so corrosive to others, gods, and ourselves, why do we do it? Why do we murder? I think there are several reasons. One is it's sort of hardwired into us. Uh, this is not scripture. This is not Jesus. This is just Soren and his research. Now, uh, I'm doing some application, right? It's hardwired into us. Uh, to express uh, contempt. When, uh, when, we were, when we walked off the savannah, right, uh, we were, our brains are hardwired to recognize the difference between friends and foes. And, and sometimes our lives depended on that uh, millennia ago to, to be able to make that recognition quickly, right? And to be able to do the violence necessary to guarantee our attended survival, that's one of the reasons we express contempt. It's sort of a deeply embedded DNA sort of reality. 
Also because we're told to. If we can get an authority that we trust uh, to, to convince us to express contempt toward an outgroup, we will do it. We will do it. But then maybe there's some other beliefs as well. Maybe we believe that we actually are better than other people. Maybe it's because we want to gain status by cutting them down. We cut other people down. Maybe it's because of this. What if this is it? What if we express contempt towards other people, especially those who are closest to us, because we are deeply hurt and we're afraid that it's going to happen again. We're desperately afraid that it's going to happen again. And so what do we do? We use contemptuous language, insulting language, to drive the other person off, to push them away, to say, you cannot come over here and hurt me anymore, right? Contempt, ultimately, a defense mechanism against feeling more pain from people that you love, right? The tragedy, of course, is that when we use contempt to keep ourselves safe, the thing that we are most afraid of happening always happens. We create the very thing that we fear. We are so desperately afraid of being hurt and left alone that we push others away and guess what? End up hurt and left alone, right? We commit murder so that we won't feel pain. So that we won't feel pain. Am I hitting home? How do we change? How do we change? I would suggest this, and I think Jesus suggests this in his exegesis of this law. Instead of murdering, die. Die. The part of you that must insist on you being more righteous, you being above, you being over the person that you're engaged with, right? That part has to die. The part of you that wants to protect yourself from the pain and therefore gives up the hope of ever connecting uh, with one another again must go die. It must die. you got to let it go. You have to accept the possibility that if you do open yourself to relationship with God or neighbor, you will hurt. And that it's actually through that hurting that you actually come to have intimacy with either one of them. It's the only way. You have to not murder. You have to die. You have to die. Be willing to die. Jesus himself says it here. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother in that moment of contempt, in that moment when you feel like you are above and everyone else is beneath. You remember that Jesus invites us not towards judgment, but to reconciliation, to a letting go of our claims against the other, to a willingness to suffer on their behalf. Why? Because that is exactly what he did for us. That is exactly what he did for us. See, Jesus had the right to make his righteous claims. He had the right to speak with us, to us with contempt. He had the right to shame and judge us, and instead, what did he do? He died for us. He let go of his claims. He risked relationship with us that we might know God and one another by his grace. Uh, Corey Tinboom, a Jewish convert to Christianity, uh, says this. She was a survivor of the uh, concentration camps. Uh, and years later, after her conversion, she was giving a talk in a church in Germany. Uh, and she looked in the back and she saw a familiar face. Uh, it was the face of one of her Nazi guards in the camp. And her talk that day was on forgiveness. 
is on forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I don't know. I mean, the most contemptible people that we can sort of imagine now are, are Nazis, right? Um, imagine what it was like for her. This deep experience of pain at the hands of this person. Deep experience of pain. He comes up to her after her talk on forgiveness, and he sticks out his hands and says, Thank you, Fraulein, for the wonderful talk on forgiveness. Isn't it great that we must forgive? And his hand sat there. You know. She said that was the moment she believed the truth of the talk that she had just given. That was the moment where she was faced with holding on to her righteous contempt and rotting from the inside out because of anger or grasping the hand of the one who had hurt her and saying, I forgive you. She took the hand. She shook it. And she let it go. She let it go. Because Christ had taken her hand and shaken it. And let it go. Here's the good news. Jesus promises to work through reconciliation. He promises. If you are going to risk letting go of the contempt, which is murder in Christ's eyes, you have, there are only two options. One, you get killed. The pain that you're afraid of comes back again. And then guess what Jesus says? He says, you are united to me in my death. You will be united to me in my resurrection. I am coming again to make all things new. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. For they shall inherit the earth. Right? But also, you let it go. You forgive as Jesus has forgiven. What happens? You may find somebody shaking your hand back. God promises to work through reconciliation. He's a reconciling God. That's what he does. It's what he's all about. Jesus says, if you're at worship, I would rather you be reconciled to your neighbor. Come back later. So I'll see you later this week as you all storm out, right? The hand is out there, awaiting, awaiting. Will you take it? Let's ask for the Spirit's help uh, to let go of our contempt and forgive. Our Heavenly Father, uh, this is hard. Uh, We have suffered a lot of painful things in our lives. And I feel like I've got some pretty good reasons to be angry. Uh, will Will you take that anger from us? We pull it out of our hearts. Uh, Will you save us from our own anger? Uh, Set us free from our bondage to contempt, knowing that you are the one who makes all things new, that you are the one who has forgiven us. Help us to trust you. Give us the courage to go die. We ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing now our song of response.